thrilled and honored to be here. Um, I, I told my, my wife and a couple of my kids from home this morning, I was <clears throat> coming over to the Washington Ethical Society. <clears throat> they said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to, to preach at the Washington Ethical Society. <laughs> and uh, my, my wife said, you're preaching to the choir. I said, I, I said, I like preaching to the choir. That's my favorite place to preach, you know. Um, and I've got so many friends and neighbors who are here today, and uh, my special friend, Allison Gansler, who's actually in the choir. Um, so, um, so thank you for, for this high honor of this invitation. Um, and um, I, I'm going to um, address the, the topic that was assigned to me, which was uh, risking it all for the world. So... Um, ethicists and Unitarians, uh, spiritual travelers and ethical pilgrims, uh, Eighth District constituents, especially <laughs> uh, uh, residents of D.C., the disenfranchised colony, uh, and uh, uh, bad hombres and nasty women who are undoubtedly are still out there. Um, I'm, I'm honored to be in the presence of uh, all of these great ethicists and Unitarians living and also from the past, uh, John Adams and Abigail Adams and Susan B. Anthony and Roger Baldwin who founded the ACLU and Clara Barton who started the Red Cross and E.E. Uh, e. Cummings and Charles Darwin uh, and Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, uh, cast your whole vote uh, not just with your ballot, but with your life. Um, and, uh, and Nathaniel Hawthorne, and uh, well, that, that only gets us up to the H's. Uh, <laughs> we should get up to J for Jefferson, because uh, I wanted to start with the great Thomas Jefferson, uh, who will be a kind of touchstone for this speech. Um, Jefferson said um, these words of comfort, to us, he sends to us from through the centuries, a little patience and we shall see the reign of the witches pass over, their spells dissolve, and the people recovering their true sight restore their government to its true principles. If the game runs against us sometimes at home, we must have patience until our luck turns back, and then we shall have an opportunity of winning back the principles we have lost, for this is a game where principles are at stake. Um, so, uh, risking it all for the, for the world. Um, and I think Amanda gave me this title, and I'm glad she did. Uh, for uh, someone once told me, uh, before I was about to go scuba diving for the first and last time, uh, <laughs> that the greatest risk in life is to risk nothing. Uh, and it stuck with me. Um, and so... so We've got the opportunity now, and in some sense, we have the obligation to risk, if not everything, almost everything, um, every day. I think that um, we have the opportunity in these days to wake up every day and go and fight for everything that we believe in um, and um, to make some smart, strategic, positive risks. Um, and we, we can risk um, our comfort our uh, complacency, uh, our anonymity, our privacy, uh, even our safety in some ways, and we can risk 
uh, our social status, and some people I know have already risked their jobs. Uh, and I, I hope um, it doesn't come to any of these most extreme situations for people. Um, but we must be willing to risk it all. And so I want to talk about um, what it is we're fighting for. Now, I should say there's one constraint, which is one thing I don't want to risk is your 501c3 status. Uh, so I, I'm not going to be advocating specific political actions here because uh, I can't. I'm not going to be talking about specific elections in 2017 in Virginia or New Jersey or any place. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to be getting into that. I, um, but I, I, I want to speak more generally about what it is uh, we get to fight for um, during, during these times. Um, and so I want to talk about liberalism, progressivism, conservatism, and radicalism. Those are my topics. Because um, I think that those are actually all the things that we're fighting for. And what do I mean by that? Well, just stick with me for a few minutes, and I, I want to explain why I say that. Um, let's, let's start with the liberalism. Um, the heart of the word liberalism is liberty. And so, you know, sometimes I'll be in a debate with another politician, and they say, Raskin, you're a liberal. I say, you're damn right I'm a liberal. The heart of the word liberal is liberty. If we're not for liberty, what are we doing in politics, you know? Um, and what are the components of liberty? And in some sense, Jefferson and other founders did us a favor because they really set forth the major structure of liberalism and liberty in our Constitution. Um, and um, I actually, uh, uh, one time I was invited to go on the O'Reilly Factor show. Now, this was before I knew what that was, and I just w went on it. And, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was right after a decision in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals called Newdow versus United States, which was about the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. And uh, there was a, a guy, Mr. Newdow, who was a doctor, a lawyer, and an atheist, a triple threat. And uh, he, uh, he wanted his daughter to be able to participate in the Pledge of Allegiance, but not with one nation under God um, in it. And so he brought a lawsuit, and um, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals came back uh, in a unanimous panel decision, uh, dominated, by the way, by Republican appointee judges who said he's absolutely right that the addition of the words one nation under God in 1954 to the Pledge of Allegiance violated the Establishment Clause and, and violated uh, the Constitution. And so anyway, and I'd written something about that, so I got invited to go on the O'Reilly show, and he said, well, you know, what is it about you constitutional law professors that you know, you don't want it to say one nation under God. I said, well, Mr. O'Reilly, you know, we're originalists. We want to go back to the original Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, it was uh, written by uh, Francis Bellamy, who was a, a radical Baptist minister from Vermont, uh, part of an abolitionist family. Um, and he had actually written it in 1892 on the, uh, the 400th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in the New World. And... Um, 
and he, he kind of wanted to stick it to the South because they were pledging allegiance to the Confederate battle flag. And so he wrote the pledge, I pledge allegiance to my flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, very sharp words towards the South, with liberty and justice for all, were very radical words at the time. Um, so, all right, and so O'Reilly says, well, no, you know, uh, it was added in 1954, President Eisenhower. Um, we've had it for 50 years. If we're not one nation under God, what are we? And I said, yeah, I don't know, one nation under Canada? You know, <laughs> the, 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 this at least would be geographically correct. But then I, then I said more seriously, no, how about one nation under the Constitution? Because it's the Constitution that sets up the structure of liberty that has allowed America to progress. So anyway, he didn't like that very much. So you, it, I never got invited back on the O'Reilly show. But anyway, so, so what, what one nation under the Constitution, well, what are the principles? Well, one, um, the separation of church and state. I mean, it, we're the first nation in the history of humanity to proclaim the separation of church and state as a founding ideal. And our founders were rebelling against centuries of holy crusades and inquisition and witchcraft trials and religious violence. Um, and so the, you know, Madison and George Mason and Jefferson um, wanted to create a system of government where um, government would not control religion, so it would be a matter between people and God or their own faith. And religion would not control government, so government would not become an instrument of terror and oppression in, in people's lives. And um, that's why we've got the Establishment Clause no establishment of religion, the free exercise clause. Each person can freely exercise worship. We have the clause in Article 6 saying no religious tests for public office um, in America. Um, and if you think about it, the, the most radical three words in the Constitution are the first three words of the Constitution, we the people. Because before America, every other government was founded on the conception that God endowed the king with powers and the king became the head of the state and the head of the church and at the very bottom was the people who were meant to follow orders and our founders flipped the whole thing upside down and said all power flows from the people. All power. So even those of us who are in public office are the servants of the people. In Article 1, Congress is the servants of the people. The president just implements the laws that Congress adopts and the court sorts out conflicts, but all power with the people. Potestas in populo, Jefferson quoted um, and Madison quoted at the Constitutional Convention, power from the people. Um, and this has been the, an essential um, bulwark of liberty in our, in our country. And it's taken time. It's not as if it began at the beginning and we had a very clear vision. Jefferson got it when he wrote his famous letter to the Danbury Baptists about the wall of separation. Um, but for a long time, kids were forced to pray in public schools, uh, usually according to Protestant 
uh, liturgy until 1962, until Engel versus Vitale, when the Supreme Court said it is no part of government to compose prayers and to compel citizens to participate in them. And that was the moment, of course, when uh, America's right began to say that uh, the Supreme Court had um, driven prayer from the public schools, banned prayer in the public schools. But I like to say the Supreme Court did not ban prayer in the public schools. As long as there are pop math quizzes, there will be prayer in the public schools. <laughs> Anybody can pray whenever he or she wants. What has been banned is officially driven compulsory prayer in the public schools. That's a whole, that's a whole different thing. Um, and um, so anyway, um, it, it's going to be essential for us to um, uphold, uphold this principle. When I had my five minutes of internet, uh, internet fame or infamy um, was when I testified in the Maryland State Senate. This is before I became a, a state senator uh, against the, the plan to uh, ban same-sex marriage in the state constitution to say in the, con in the state constitution the marriage is between one man and one woman. So I testified and then this senator, Nancy Jacobs, said to me, well, professor, you keep talking about equal protection and due process, but what about the Bible? The Bible says that marriage is between one man and one woman. And I said, senator, with all due respect, when you took your oath of office, you put your hand on the Bible and you swore to uphold the constitution. You did not put your hand on the constitution and swear to uphold the Bible. Um, and the you know, that's, that's the essential confusion that continues to um, bedevil us in our politics. I had a, a colleague who wanted to endorse the Ten Commandments because Texas did it and Mississippi did it and Alabama did it. And they said, well, you know, if they can endorse the Ten Commandments, we can endorse the Ten Commandments. I said, well, first of all, the Ten Commandments have been doing all right for the last several millennia without an endorsement by the Maryland General Assembly. Do, you know, do we really? Um, no, they, they insisted that it was, a, you know, this was the, the cornerstone of, um, you know, the, the cornerstone of Western law. I mean, it's a, a little hard for me to see about, you know, not coveting thy neighbor's oxen and, uh, you know, all that. Anyway, so I introduced a, an amendment to it saying, well, if we're going to vote on the Ten Commandments, we should have to vote on each commandment separately. Okay, so you can't get away with, uh, you know, the omnibus package because you could end up voting for a commandment you violated and then you'd be taking the name of the Lord in vain, violating the third commandment even while you're... Anyway, she said, I was, she said I was making a mockery out of it. I said she was making a mockery out of it. But um, <clears throat> uh, it, it doesn't end, but we've got to stand strong uh, on this. All of the attempts to strip public money and put, them, uh, put it into private schools to undermine the public schools, the attempts to attack uh, Planned Parenthood and family planning, um, uh, all of these. And we must stand strong for religious liberty internationally because... All over the world, I was just reading an article about Saudi Arabia, for example, um, there are still laws against blasphemy and heresy and apostasy, and there are people rotting in jail all over the world right now because they are deemed to have offended somebody else's religious beliefs in a place that doesn't honor um, church v. state. So we have to be as respectful as possible about people's religious um, beliefs, but we've got to stand strong for uh, the wall of separation between church and state. And um, 
we also have to recognize the way in which religion operates in lots of places as a form of identity politics even more than as a system of belief. I, I was in Ireland and I learned a great joke there which sums it up well for me. Um, there's a guy driving down the highway um, <clears throat> speeding and so the police officer um, pulls him over, comes, raps on his window, the guy rolls the window down and the, the cop says to him, um, are you Catholic or are you Protestant? And he says, uh, he says, I'm an atheist. And the cop says, Catholic atheist or Protestant atheist? Uh, uh, <laughs> um, so, um, but, it, it, but it's the same also with freedom of expression and all of the liberties. Also, the separation of powers. You know, the separation of church and state is a form of separation of powers uh, in society to try to save people from the merger of um, state and church. Um, but also in the government. You know, Madison said the very definition of tyranny was the collapse of all powers into one, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. And so um, on the theory that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, the founders divided the, the powers up. Um, and, um, but I also want to be clear, and I don't just say this because I'm a member of Congress now, um, Congress comes first. It is in Article I. The Congress represents the people. It's Congress that's the representative of the people, and um, the president only comes after, and the president's job is to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. We have no kings here in America, no kings. We started with that proposition, and when we finally got around to it in the Civil War, we said, and no slaves here. We have no kings, we have no slaves, we have no official churches. Just the citizenry, like Jefferson said, in the vast blue sky, um, above us. Um, and the leaders must be the loyal servants of the people uh, at every turn. Um, we, the founders were concerned not only that we not have kings, but that our presidents and our members of Congress not be compromised by kings and princes and their fancy gifts and their emoluments, which is why we have Article 1, Section 9, banning uh, the receipt of presents, emoluments, uh, offices and titles by, by foreign governments. Um, so, liberalism, we've got to defend all the fragmentation and the separation of power. That's what saves us from authoritarianism. Um, okay, number two, progressivism. They ask me if I'm a progressive. I say, you're damn right I'm a progressive because the heart of the word progressivism is progress. And if we're not making progress, what are we doing in politics? We should go do something else with our times. Um, so, um, progress for everybody. Um, you guys know I'm a Democrat, so I will invoke, in the spirit of bipartisanship, our last great Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, uh, who, <laughs> who spoke of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And the story of America is the story of a government with, which started with the highest possible ideals, but a deeply compromised reality. We were a slave republic of Christian white male property owners over the age of 21, but through successive waves of social, political, and constitutional struggle, we have opened America up. So the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment said equal protection and due process. The 15th Amendment said 
no race discrimination in voting. The 17th Amendment switched the form of election of senators from the legislatures to the people. The 19th Amendment established women's suffrage. The 23rd Amendment is what gives people in D.C. the right to participate, at least in presidential elections. The 24th Amendment banned poll taxes. The 26th Amendment lowered the voting age to 18. But still, nowhere do we have a proclamation of the universal right of everybody to vote and everybody to participate in government at every level, which is why you've got millions and millions of disenfranchised people under the American flag, including people right here in the District of Columbia, uh, 700,000 people uh, who are the only residents of the capital city on earth who are not represented with voting representatives um, in, in their own uh, parliament. Um, and the ex-felons, you know, the, this has been, continues to be a problem around the country. The, this was the very first time I got to speak on the Maryland State Senate floor because I'd campaigned on restoring voting rights for the ex-felons. Maryland had the same law that Mississippi and Alabama have. You get out of jail, you have every right restored to you except your right to vote. It's got nothing to do with rehabilitation or deterrence. It's all about strategic voter suppression. So when I went to the Senate, uh, everybody said, you've got to go see the late, great Senator Gwendolyn Britt from Prince George's County. She had been uh, a leader in the local civil rights movement. She led the campaign to desegregate the amusement park at Glen Echo when she was a student at Howard uh, University. And she was a state senator from Prince George's County. And she'd been putting this bill in for a decade. So I said, Gwen, I got elected on this and I want to help out on restoring voting rights for the ex-felons in Maryland. She said, great, I'll let you know. And she came back to me just about three or four weeks later and I'd never spoken on the Senate floor before to, you know, to make a real speech. And she said, Jamie, we got the ex-felon voting bill at a committee and we want you to be the floor leader on it. I said, oh my God, I'm so honored and delighted. And she said, well, don't be that honored. You're the only white senator willing to do it. And so I said, all right, well, you know, I'll take it however I can get it. So the, the minority leader gets up and says, mm, uh, the Democrats want to give the right to vote back to murderers, rapists, armed robbers, arsonists, and reads down the list of felonies. And Gwen, who sat in front of me, turned around. And she said, okay, it's your turn. You can get up now. <laughs> um, so, um, so, but I had an argument for them, you know, and I, I said, um, and it was based on having knocked on 17,000 doors in District 20. And I said, you know, the, the vast majority of people who are going to be reenfranchised under our legislation, unlike the people you're talking about who are never going to get out of prison, are in for nonviolent offenses. And I said, take one of my constituents, for example, Jack Abramoff. Okay? Now, they, yeah, now Jack, Jack has just gone off to federal prison for six years in Western Maryland, uh, and if anybody should be disenfranchised for life, it's somebody whose offenses are against the integrity of democracy itself. But on our side of the aisle, we do believe that the purpose of punishment is rehabilitation of the offender, and we will stand up for the voting rights of even a hardened ex-felon like Jack Abramoff. And so at that point, all the Democrats wanted to speak for the, uh, the, Jack, the Jack Abramoff Voting Rights Act, which is I started calling. And, uh, and we passed it by two votes. And it went to the House, and they passed it, and we reenfranchised 88,000 people that day. And Maryland's no longer on the list, you know. Um, 
But anyway, I, I raise it just because there's still lots of disenfranchised people out there. The people in the territories in Puerto Rico, American Samoa, Guam, the Virgin Islands, millions of people uh, still cannot participate. And that doesn't even talk about the millions of people across the country in states where they theoretically have the right to vote but are consistently being victimized by different strategies of voter suppression and elimination of voters from the polls and the rolls and so on. Um, progressivism is what we've got to defend. Uh, we've made great strides in marriage equality. I'm very proud that Maryland passed marriage equality, the first state in the union to do so without being told we had to do so by our state Supreme Court. We, you know, all, all praise to Massachusetts and everything, but their state Supreme Court ruled they had to do it. Our state Supreme Court said no, but we did it anyway. And when it got petitioned to the ballot by the right wing, we became the first state in the union to uphold marriage equality at the polls, which is pretty impressive. Um, and, and, I, and I was down there in the Obergefell decision when it was handed down and the Supreme Court read the decision and Mr. Obergefell was there um, and he went outside, he was mobbed by the reporters and they said to him, how do you feel? He said, I feel great and elated, but I want to thank the people of Maryland because had they not done what they did, my partner and I would not have been able to fly to BWI Thurgood Marshall Airport to get married on the tarmac, only to go back to Ohio to have their marriage dishonored by their own state um, which is what led to the litigation and then the, the, big, the big breakthrough. Um, let me just say one more thing about progressivism, which is um, the, um, two things, one about healthcare and one about DC. You know, um, on, my, on my first day in Congress, I, I went down to the basement of the Longworth House office building to sign up for health insurance because it comes with my job, so I was able to get it. I, you know, I'm able to purchase health insurance as part of the Obamacare thing. The members of Congress get it. And I was looking through what was going to be on the schedule for that day, and the first vote was the vote to begin to um, dismantle the Affordable Care Act. And there's a line of new members of Congress waiting to do what I'm doing, which is to sign up for health care. And then I look in there, and I recognize some of the Democrats, and I recognize some of the other ones because I don't recognize them as Republicans, you know. And they're waiting in line, and I say to myself, wait a second, these guys are not about to come in here, sit down, sign up for the health insurance that they get as part of their job, and then go upstairs and vote for a bill to strip 22 million Americans of their health insurance, and that's exactly what happened. And then they moved to voucherize Medicare, to reduce and block grant Medicaid to uh, demonize and defund Planned Parenthood. Um, the, you know, this is, what, this is what the agenda is. And um, I mean, for me, this is just, just kind of a fundamental red line, like that we have got to stand up for, for everybody. And I feel it very strongly because uh, I, I have a pre-existing condition as they say, six years ago, um, I came down with uh, colon cancer, and um, and I, I learned something important because I was the floor leader on marriage equality right when that was going on, and and at the end of the whole marriage equality fight, when you're the floor leader, you get to make a little speech when it's over. And what I said was this, that I had learned in the process the difference between misfortune and injustice. Because if you wake up one day and 
uh, it's a beautiful day, and you've got a family you love and friends you love and constituents you love and not one but two great jobs, and then a doctor tells you you've got stage three colon cancer, it's a great misfortune because it can happen to anybody. But it does happen to people all the time. It's just a misfortune. It's just, uh, it's just part of life. But if you learn that you've got stage three colon cancer or you've got leukemia or you have a heart attack and you can't get health care because you love the wrong person or because you're too poor or because you lost your job, that's not just a misfortune. That's an injustice because we can do something about that. And so I just I think there's no going back. And I think that the. I think that the Republicans are starting to realize that you can't bring 22 million or 30 million new people, if you include the Medicaid expansion, <clears throat> into the healthcare system and then just take it all away without creating insurrectionary conditions across the country, which is why all of my Republican colleagues are in hiding. Uh, you know, they're, they're hiding under their beds. They're hiding behind their office sofas, which in many cases are their beds. Uh, um, so we've got to stand strong on that. And then, you know, on the D.C. thing, because I'm also on the Oversight Committee, and there have been a lot of attacks on D.C. The most recently, they, they tried to repeal D.C.'s death with dignity law. And, and I got up and made a speech, and I said, I'm not even going to address death with dignity because you don't even need to get to the policy. You don't have to support death with dignity. You just have to support life with democracy. Okay, and, and that's what we're standing for. Afterwards, one of the Republicans said to me, I don't see why you're saying it's unfair for us to overrule this, lo this local policy. He said, because none of the people here can vote, whether they're Democrat or Republican. So it's not an unfair situation. <laughs> and I, I, I remembered a story my dad had once told me about... Um, a professor of philosophy named Sidney Morgenbesser at Columbia University who got subpoenaed for jury duty, and he was in the jury veneer, and then the judge said to him, well, Mr. Morgenbesser, before we put you on the, the jury, um, this is a case about police brutality. We want to make sure you haven't had any experience with the police that was unpleasant or unfair. And he says, well, I actually I had one experience with the police. It was unpleasant, but it wasn't unfair. And, then, and the judge said, really, well, what happened? He said, well, I was going to this peace rally in Central Park, and these two police officers started beating me up with their billy clubs. The judge says, that's terrible, but why do you say it was unpleasant, but it wasn't unfair? He said, well, when, when they were hitting me on the head, it hurt a lot, so it was unpleasant, but they were doing it to everybody, so it wasn't unfair. Um, and I, I guess you could say, in that sense, it's not unfair that everybody is disenfranchised uh, in the District of Columbia. Progressivism, we've got to keep the the train's going. We've got to keep moving forward on all of these issues. But and I want to say something about conservatism. Because um, <clears throat> the remarkable thing about these days is that we not only have to uphold the banners of liberalism and progressivism, but of conservatism too. And I say that because I realize that <clears throat> most of my time legislatively now, I'm trying to conserve our land, our air, our water, our climate system, the earth, the constitution, the bill of rights, our memory of the past, the possibility of a future. Um, and the people who call themselves conservative today, I literally do not know what they are conserving other than their own wealth and power. I don't get it. Um, and, and I think there is an honorable tradition there. 
And there is something uh, that conservatism has contributed to America. Um, but I'm not, I'm not seeing it now. Um, the conservatives today um, are entangled with vulgarity, profanity, greed, deception, mendacity, sexual, harass uh, sexual harassment and misogyny, racism, white supremacy, anti-Semitism, fascism, nihilism, religious fanaticism, homophobia, immigrant bashing, plutocracy, and propaganda, which W.H. Auden defined as the use of magic by those who no longer believe in it against those who still do. So the real conservatives have basically vanished, and we must risk our flattering self-conception as liberals and progressives by rescuing conservatism too and finding what is of value and of use in it. That is part of the world that we must save against the trashing that's taking place. But also, finally, we must be radicals in the radical and etymological sense of the word. We must get to the root of our problems and we must not be afraid of advancing solutions that others are not prepared for yet. The overarching problem confronting humanity, and I will not uh, call it an issue because it's not an issue, it's the whole context in which we've got to decide all of the issues, is climate change. A dagger pointing at the very throat of civilization and our species. 2016, the hottest year on record. After 2015, the hottest year on record. After 2014, the hottest year on record. And so on for a decade. Record fires, record drought, record flooding, freak weather events, 116 degrees for an entire week in India, 119 degrees in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. Um, it's an emergency that we are in, a civilizational emergency. And I have been calling for a green deal for America, a massive reinvestment in our ailing infrastructure in a way that uplifts our environmental values and breaks our dependency on the carbon paradigm and the carbon barons. But Donald Trump says climate change is a hoax created by the Chinese and perpetrated on the Americans. But if you read the intelligence agency report of 17 US intelligence agencies, you recognize the truth. Donald, Donald Trump is the hoax created by the Russians and perpetrated on the Americans. <laughs> He's the hoax, not climate change. And when you talk to them about it, you ask them about it, they say, I don't know, I'm not a scientist, as if that were not perfectly clear to everybody. Um, <laughs> but if you're not a scientist, then your job is simple. Your job is to listen to the scientists. So we must be radicals about climate change. We must be radicals about the economy. If you ask Wall Street, this administration is the greatest thing ever to happen. The stock market is soaring, flying high like Icarus, bloated beyond belief. Um, it's amazing what it will do for the stock of the oil and gas industry when you start dismantling the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and the EPA and the Paris Agreement. It's amazing what it will do for the stock of the 
military-industrial complex when you say you're going to slash $54 billion from the nation's social budget, from Head Start and NIH and the National Endowment for the Arts and the Peace Corps, and put it into the Pentagon. Um, so, and I don't know for what purposes. The, the, you know, our closest military competitor is Russia, and they're our best friend now. So, meantime, hunger continues to spread, inequality deepens, the economy is not working well for lots and lots of Americans, which is why we're in this situation. Lots of Americans in Michigan, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Indiana, in Baltimore. Um, Donald Trump ran to Hillary's left on questions of trade, NAFTA, GATT, TPP. He ran to Hillary's left on questions of Wall Street and said she was captive to Wall Street. And he ran to her left even on the Iraq war, falsely claiming he had opposed it, um, but truthfully stating that Hillary had supported it. Um, so he didn't mean any of it, of course. I mean, he campaigned like William Jennings Bryan, but he's governing like William McKinley. There's never been a cabinet like this before in U.S. history, uh, worth billions and billions uh, of dollars. It's a Goldman Sachs uh, cabinet. Um, but we must recover the populism that is part of the progressive heritage in America. We must address the economic dislocation caused not just by trade, but by autom automation and mechanization that have displaced so many Americans. And we must um, revive a politics that's built around um, the needs of the people first and, and structures the economy around the needs of the American people. Um, my dear friends, this is a time when all of us must choose every day how to engage a world that has turned shockingly harsh and dangerous. Um, and um, I, I know a story about having to choose from my dad who uh, worked for President Kennedy and the, um, Bobby Kennedy went to testify before the Senate Subcommittee on Racketeering. And uh, so Bobby Kennedy uh, um, was cross-examining Jimmy Hoffa. And Hoffa was testifying about his mob ties and everything. And, and Bobby Kennedy said to him, Mr. Hoffa, you know, as the president of the National Brotherhood of Teamsters and secretary general of the Mid-Atlantic Teamsters Pension Fund and everything, a man of your great passion in life is capable of doing both very great good and very great evil. And Jimmy Hoffa leaned in his microphone and he said, I intend to live up to both of my responsibilities. Uh, <laughs> and, um, so we obviously uh, must live up to one of our responsibilities here. Um, the times have found us, supernatural forces, to mysticism or to romance. Um, and, but I do confess that I, I have one uh, final irreducible romantic and mystical belief, and that is in democracy itself, and more specifically, American democracy. Um, and this is not only because my candidate got 1.9 million votes more in the popular vote than the winner of the Electoral College. Um, it's because um, I think there's nothing wrong with democracy, as FDR said, that what's right with democracy cannot solve. You know, the Electoral College, we can solve that with the national popular vote. The wall of gerrymandered districts, we can solve with independent redistricting commissions that create multi-member districts and proportional representations. Um, and yet still, I know it is a superstition and it is a faith. 
Um, I, I want to leave you with a, a great story I know about Niels Bohr, the, the great physicist of the 20th century, and he had some friends over for dinner, and they were leaving, and as, on the way out, they saw that there was a horseshoe above the doorway, and a woman said to him, Niels, you know, here you are, one of the great scientists of the 20th century, and I see a, a horseshoe. I never took you to be the superstitious type. And he said, no, 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 I'm not superstitious. They say it works whether or not you believe in it. Um, <laughs> and, and so I think democracy is like that. You might lose your faith sometimes, but it's going to work. But we need to engage and be part of it. Um, I leave you finally with the words of the great Tom Paine, who said, uh, these are the times that try men's and women's souls. Um, the sunshine patriot and the summer soldier will shrink from the service of their country in their cause at this moment. But those who stand by it through thick and thin will win the love and favor of every man and woman for posterity. He said, tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, but we have this saving consolation. The harder the struggle in the end, the greater is the victory. Thank you guys very much. Um, coming forward in action and finding that victory is something that is very um, near to the heart of all of us, I know, at the Ethical Society. And we are grateful for your service um, to democracy and to our country. And, um, and I am grateful for this community. I asked Congressman Raskin to come here today um, because we are launching our annual operating budget drive for next year. And... Um, and, you know, the thing is, right, we're a little awkward about money. I actually love talking about money and asking for money, and I love giving money to this community because I find it to be an honor, a luxury, and a privilege to give to something that um, gives to my life, to my own family's life, and that I think works for good in the world. And um, I have never felt more clear about that than at this moment. I think, um, yeah. I think everything that you're speaking about, the country that we see before us, it is clear that we need a community like this one. I hear it from you over and over again and have been hearing it, that we need a place to build up our own resilience, to renew ourselves, and to be able then to act for justice, for resistance, and ultimately to build a world that is actually more beautiful than we have even imagined yet, right? You know, we have resistance work to do now, um, but what we really want is a world that is more just than we have yet seen. We want that progress to continue in truly radical ways um, until um, America lives up to its promise in a way it hasn't yet. Um, and so I am, have never been more clear about what we need um, in this country, and I have never been more clear about the role of a place like the Washington Ethical Society in creating that for us individually and in building our ability to create that out in the world. There are a lot of ways that we're hoping to do that in the next year, and over the next month you're going to hear about them. We have over 100 kids registered in our Sunday school program now. We had 90 children here last Sunday. Um, we might need a little bit more staffing there. Um, 
um, you know, we want to continue to be able to meet the needs of our community and all of the people who have not yet stepped in our building. As you know, we're in the middle of a growth spurt, and I will tell you that this election has not decreased that. Um, we have seen more and more folks coming to us and trying to reach us be from beyond our walls as well. So one of the things we're hoping to do is significantly increase our technology um, so that people who are not able to be in the DC area can still be a part of this community and receive messages like the one that we heard this morning from Congressman Raskin, messages of hope and renewal and um, messages of resistance and justice work. So we have a lot of hopes for next year, but the, the the main point, the big thing, is how much we are needed. Um, and I am really grateful that, that I have a community like this one. I'm honored and privileged to serve it. I'm honored and privileged to hear our children who are joining us. And so we're going to have them join us here um, and to greet each other uh, at this moment and greet our children as they come in. <laughs> and some of them are coming up on stage with us. Congressman Raskin, thank you. Thanks.